Say It Loud Network presents Corner Table Talk. Well, hello and welcome to Corner Table Talk. Today I have two really, really cool guests. I have Eliza Bournet and Alice Randall. Eliza is the editor-in-chief of Oxford American Magazine, and after eight years of working in just about every editorial position, she has announced that she's moving on to a very passionate project. She's going to become the director of development for the Central Arkansas Library System, and she's very excited about that. But before she left, she put her stamp and handprint all over the spring food issue. That has been guest edited by the illustrious Alice Randall. Alice is an incredible lady. She is considered by many uh, as one of the most significant voices in 21st century African-American fiction. She's a award-winning author. Her and her daughter, Caroline Randall Williams, wrote an incredible book a few years ago, Soul Food, that won a NAACP Image Award. And Black Bottom Saints, her current novel, is nominated, and I believe the awards are this week at the NAACP Awards. She's nominated there again, but she's a, a award-winning songwriter. If I were to read all of Alice's accomplishments, acknowledgments, and awards, that would be a podcast in and of itself. So I won't do that because I want to talk to these two fascinating ladies. So Alice, Eliza, thank you both for joining me here at the Corner Table. Well, Brad, it's so good to be with you. And the most fun thing about my career is that it allowed me to eat in some of your great restaurants. So I was thinking back on this. that I got to go to Danny Glover to Roxbury. I got to go with Kamiko Fox to Georgia. And I got to go with my own daughter to Post and Beam, where we had a signing party for Soul Food Love. The one place we wanted to go in L.A. was Post and Beam. And it happened. So we're thrilled. I, I love that, and I'm so honored. And Eliza, I know the, none of those places probably ring a bell for you, other than now having read about them in your in your fantastic spring issue. Oh my gosh! Well, I can certainly picture them from your wonderful, evocative descriptions, and hear <laughs> the music, and taste the dishes. I would. I finished reading your essay so hungry and wishing that I could enjoy meals at those restaurants. Oh, I love that. Well, so I want to kick things off the way that I normally do with what I call short order questions, just a little play on some restaurant terminology. And I'm going to fire a series of easy to answers. This is just a no brainer for, for you ladies, but just some fun questions. I want to just get your quick take on. So Alice, I'm going to start with you. What are you reading? Ooh, you know, I've been one, I got up this morning and reread the Oxford American Spring edition because it's a pleasure to read and reread. Ricky and stories. You know, Randall Lear dedicated the issue to him. And so he has a wonderful story about the eternal glory that is ham hocks and so many other things. So I've been reading some Randall Keenan. Love that. I also like Lady Hubbard's new novel, which has been exciting. Eliza? Yeah, I feel like I've been going down a bit of a trip down memory lane, getting my office all organized and packed up to prepare to leave my keys on the desk for the next editor. But I have definitely been revisiting the Oxford American and some of my favorite essays that I've gotten to work on through the years. One of the sweetest things about the last couple of weeks is that I've really had my head down editing some essays that we have forthcoming in our in our next issue. So yeah, thinking about that, reading 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 back issues of the OA. Well, it's a beautiful magazine, so um, I can certainly appreciate uh, wanting to revisit some of those fantastic stories. Alice, what are you watching? 
Ooh, well, one of the weird things that I have discovered in COVID is Pea Valley. <laughs> That which is said and um, coming out of Memphis, so I actually do love that. I watch. I also have been really deeping digging into Nollywood, the Nigerian films. Um, Lion, I think it's called Lion Heart. I love that one. I love these new Nigerian films that are available largely on Netflix, and I'm fascinated. I'm enjoying. Wow, them. that that's new to me. I'm going to have to look for that. How about you, Eliza? What are you What are you watching? Well, if I give you the real answer, it is that <laughs> when I am watching TV, I am uh, supervising my two-year-old who is watching right. children's programming. Um, <laughs> but I'm also, I've been binge-watching The Sopranos, which I've never seen before from the beginning with my husband. That's been one of our, our COVID projects. That's fantastic. You know, I, I had been binge-watched Sex in the City recently because I was working most of the nights as that series was running, and I missed so much of it, but my wife and I thoroughly enjoy it uh, lately. How about, uh, Alice, what are you listening to? What kind of music? What's what's in your in your ears these days? Well, you know, Black Bottom Saints has literally a, my new novel, we put together a Spotify playlist that has about 139 songs in it. And I listen to that thing. It's a lot of music from like 1937 and even a little bit earlier to 1968. And I love the weird deep cuts we have on this playlist. So it's a lot of um, blues and jazz and early R&B. And I just love that. What but I also like Megan the Stallion and some <laughs> of you know, uh, this moment, this new and emerging moment from Mickey Guyton to Megan the Stallion that women and particularly women of color are emerging in the music scene in some very special and new ways. Yeah, she pretty much owned the, uh, the Grammys the other night. It was fun to watch her. Uh, how about you, Eliza, with your two-year-old sleeping? What's in your earbuds? <laughs> yeah, a couple of things. I've been listening to a lot of Waxahachie lately. I love her album, St. Cloud. I just feel like I've had that on. That's been one of my pandemic soundtracks, listening to that on, on repeat. And then another thing I've been kind of revisiting and rediscovering lately is just brought home the Magnolia Electric Company album, Songs Ohio, from, from the record store. And so listening to it for the first time on vinyl. And enjoying that. Vinyl is a fun experience to revisit. The, the, the music that you play on a on a record player is just different than than any other delivery system. And I I still enjoy playing albums as well. Okay, favorite meal with its roots in the South. This is so up your alley, Alice. Talk to me. Oh, my favorite is it one that I would cook or one that sure. I would do? Sure. Uh, like that. You know, I have to say something odd. I and I've only invented two dishes: one with my daughter, and one is the cornbread Madeleine. I personally think I am the first person to ever make a lot of those uh, in Nashville. Because, of course, I read Proust when I was young. I was that nerdy, strange girl. But my grandfather, every day when I was a little girl, would start the day by making skillet cornbread and black coffee. That's what I was fed as a little child. Skillet cornbread, black coffee. And he would take some to my grandmother in her bed. So he would protect her from the toys, toils of normal life by starting her day off that way. After I read Proust, I wanted to reinvent that for myself. And so I started making cornbread in little Madeleine moles with sometimes I use the bacon drippings and I dip it in coffee and I was taken back to Detroit in 1963. So one of my favorite meals would begin with cornbread Madeleine. Caroline and I invented this thing, the sweet potato broth together. 
Um, and I love our black IP kale potato broth do. It's vegetarian. It's completely rooted in the black experience. And so for me, cornbread madeleine, some black IP kale sweet potato broth stew, and then maybe poached red apple uh, pears. That's a perfect soul food Southern meal for me. Oh man, I'm coming over. <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, Eliza, what do you, what do you have a taste for when you're having something Southern? Yeah, well, I'll say first that my daughter's name is Madeline, and we we make a lot of Madelines in my house to celebrate her and in tribute to her. So I'll name a dish that we can serve along some of Alice's cornbread Madelines. Um, probably the dish that I have the warmest feelings and memories about that has its roots in the South and in my state is duck gumbo. My dad is an avid duck hunter and. Filling the freezer with duck was a was a big part of my life when I was growing up. And my mom just makes the best duck gumbo served with Arkansas rice. Arkansas, of course, is a is a great exporter of rice. So I would say duck gumbo, rice, Arkansas rice, cornbread madeleines, and then one of my best friends owns a wonderful ice creamery in Little Rock called Loblolly in downtown Little Rock. So for dessert, I'd say let's go and get some local ice cream, then go for a walk while we eat our ice cream cones. I love duck. I went to China a few years ago with my wife and I ate duck every night. I had to eat duck all over China and uh, it was just phenomenal. That's one of my favorite things to eat. Both of those things sound so delicious. So ladies, thank you. So let's dive in here and thank you both again for, for joining me here at, at the corner table. So Eliza, I want to start with you. Um, I know you're moving on. You've got an exciting new position that you're going to move to, but you know, you've been with Oxford American for, I think, eight years. And obviously you've made some pretty strong relationships there. You've done some fantastic work. This issue is, uh, it's incredible. It's such a beautiful cover and, and the articles are, are excellent as well. But I know you're excited to move on, but there has to be a little bittersweet feeling. How are you feeling these days? Oh, it's very overwhelming. And I've been so focused on, you know, handing off projects and ending on a positive note that I haven't had a chance to fully process it yet. But the OA has been such a central part of my life for decades now. I initially went to work for the OA as an intern in 2006. Um, I, I tell this story a lot, but I'm from Little Rock, and the Oxford American had moved from Mississippi to Arkansas when I was a teenager. And as someone who really loved and geeked out over magazines, it just rocked my world to have a publication like the Oxford American come and move into my backyard, um, particularly because I felt fairly removed from the world of New York magazines, which at the time is what I thought, you know, a great magazine had to be made in New York. So to have been able to have the opportunity to intern there as a young person and then come back to the magazine and rise through the ranks over time, I still can't quite believe I've been able to do that and had the opportunity to work with so many amazing writers um, like both of you. So I think I'm feeling a lot of gratitude for that experience. And I often say that magazine editing is a team sport. So the collaborations that I've had are what really stick out as the most fulfilling part of the work, all the writers and artists and other editors and other editorial collaborators. So just being grateful for those relationships, for all the writers and artists who have trusted me with their work, because as you know, it's such an intimate process to work with an editor and thankful for that experience. And then 
so appreciative to our staff that we have now. Um, we just have the best team of editors and other magazine professionals that we've ever had in in my years of working at the OA. And I have so much trust and faith in them for what they're going to do with the Oxford American in the future. So it's very satisfying to be able to end my tenure with a project that has been so much fun to work on and that has been meaningful to me personally, but that is being so well received by our readership. Um, so to be able to end like that and then also pass the baton to a group that I know will take the OA to better heights, that feels like a gift. Yeah, I can certainly attest to the team there because I, I work closely with Jay Jennings, one of your editors, and he was just such a great guy to work with, just gentle in his comments, but assertive and, and always on the money. It was just such an enjoyable experience. So Oxford American, I admit, was a new publication to me. I'm a New Yorker. I certainly you know, know New Yorker magazine and some of the other. But Oxford is a very prominent literary magazine. And can you just give a little background about that? And also, what, what led to having Alice sit in the guest editor's seat for this particular issue? Sure. So I'll give a just a really abbreviated version of the Oxford American's history. The magazine was founded in Oxford, Mississippi in 1992. Um, that's where our name comes from. And I always say it was founded with a vision that still guides us today, that the American South, a region that is home to some of the most vibrant literature, art, and music in the world, deserves to have a great magazine. Uh, at the time of our founding, our editor felt that it was a shame that writers from the South had to send their work to magazines in New York or in other cities outside of the South. So he wanted to create this great American magazine based right in the heart of the South. Um, and the magazine moved to Arkansas in the early 2000s and has changed editors a couple of times. I was the third editor-in-chief, but our mission has remained the same. And many people discover us through our annual music issue, which is a very beloved project. And we're also well-known for our food writing. Let's see, I'll share a couple of things that led to our decision to create this issue and to, and to invite Alice to serve in this role. First, the OA has released a food issue about every five years since 2005. So we were due for a new one. So, um, you know, our editors had been thinking about it for a while as we were planning our editorial calendar. We also got some very generous grant funding from the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts that allowed us to, you know, put some significant resources behind this and put together something big and ambitious. So kind of a, a, earlier last year, we were mulling over, we want to do this food issue in 2021. We felt that it would be a good idea to reach out to a guest editor, someone with expertise in food. And I had known Alice for a while. We actually appeared on a panel together at the University of the South, Swanee, in 2015, uh, a panel about food writing. And it was just so wonderful to spend that evening with her. She was there with Caroline, her daughter, talking about soul food love. And I remember sitting on that panel and listening to Alice do what she does, mm -hmm. talking about making connections between food and music and literature and history and having a ball and just keeping the audience wrapped and um, had a lovely dinner with her afterwards. And that always stuck in my mind that this is someone that I'd like to collaborate with. And then I reached out to her to contribute to our music issue last year. She wrote a beautiful piece about Laverne Baker that 
Um, it's kind of based on and expands on an excerpt from Black Bottom Saints, her novel. And through that process of working together, she said offhand, I'd love to write for a food issue if you guys are thinking about doing that sometime. And little did she know we were already putting together some early plans to do this and thinking about a guest editor and just, it's like, who else in the world has such expertise and passion in all of these areas that are so important to the Oxford Americans mission and our readership? And on top of that, who would be more fun to work with? Nobody <laughs> but us. So I'm, I'm invited her to do this. And I'm so happy that she said yes, because it has been a blast. And um, I mean, talk about handprints on every story and work of art. I mean, this this issue is Alice's vision, and it is a beautiful manifestation of that vision, I think. I would agree. It, it is. I mean, from the cover, Frank Francis's cover to all of the various beautiful illustrations and, and artwork inside is just incredible. Um, and, you know, what a year to come out with this following what we all have been going through and, and witnessed in 2020. It's just it just resonates, you know, all the more. Alice, I recently read Black Bottom Saints, and I'm going to come back to that because that's worthy of a of, a, of its own podcast, but certainly, but I want to talk about it here as well. But before we do, I want to talk about what um, you mentioned in your editor's letter that food is identity. And I want to wonder if you could just, I, I know what the words mean, but it, just from your perspective and within the context of what you're describing here, what that means and also, were you were you pleased with the assignment when when Eliza contacted you and reached out? Were you were you excited about this opportunity? When I could not have been more excited about this opportunity, and I because I admire you so much, Brad. But this is I'm going to and I want to honor Eliza. I'm going to tell you a story I rarely tell, but it will position you into understanding why I was so excited about this. My daughter's great grandmother is a woman we feature in Soul Food Love was. Alberta Johnson Balton. Her husband was Arna Balton, a Harlem Renaissance poet. His best friend was Langston Hughes. In fact, the Alberta Johnson poems that Langston Hughes wrote are the poems about Alberta, my daughter's great-grandmother, my first grandmother-in-law. How Alberta was conceived. We coined a phrase from my cookbook. It was called kitchen rape. Alberta's mother went to work for the first time in the house where her, other, her mother worked. And the son of the house who had been raised by her mother raped her within the first week. And that's how Alberta was conceived. But those two women, the white grandmother and the black grandmother who worked in her kitchen, confronted the son and the father, and they said they would have a better life for Alberta. And they sent her to New York. She lived with a white family. Her white grandmother said, I will not have my granddaughter work in anyone's kitchen or anyone's field. And the black grandmother and the white grandmother collaborated together, as I said, confronted the father and son and wrested from the white grandfather the money to send Alberta to New York to be educated, where she was taught by Arna Balton, who would become her husband, and she would become a leading figure in the Harlem Renaissance. But that was a kitchen collaboration between two grandmothers who made the work that they had done in the kitchen real that people can talk about these relationships being friendships. They were friends and they, the white grandmother acknowledged that brown child as family. And they sent grandma Bontemps literally to get a private school education 
in New York, and this is the late teens, early 20s. Isn't that what? Because two women made that kitchen collaboration a justice reality. When Eliza offered me this opportunity, I wanted to do something profound that was true collaboration. Her voice, my voice, other voices coming together to create a justice collaboration rooted in the table. And what I mean about when you asked about food as identity, who we choose to eat with and what we choose to eat defines often who we consider to be kin and friend, what we consider our culture to be. Because we might listen to the world of music. I listen to Brahms and Beethoven and Bach and Megan Thee Stallion. <laughs> but on my hard days, and I might eat from the world of food, but when I am up, the first time I got married, I served Creole Louisiana food at that first wedding. And the second time I got married, I'd serve Southern food. With the big days, and if I, at my repast, there will be that, probably that big pot of black eyed peas <laughs> and um, collard green and sweet potato broth soup. So I think we put our history and our identity on our plates. And we also visit other people's histories and identities. I really do think that this collaboration between Eliza and me, we didn't have something as significant to do as what Grandma Bonton's two grandmothers had to do. But we did have something really significant to do because we are now in this issue tell the story of the black men on the whaling ship who were literally cannibalized. They were when they were there when their bodies were eaten. We were actually telling necessary stories that relate to food and ending, eating that create the next step of justice. And we have to do that together. It's a welcome table. We're all part of it. Thank you. And yeah, I, you know, the, the, it's relative, right? I mean, the, the voice that, that you get to have with a magazine, a publication like this and what's symbolized by the partnership between you and Eliza and the objective behind the magazine and its intention has the capability of being a lasting document, a coffee table book, and the articles and the stories can live on for a long time. I want to read from a, a small excerpt, Alice, from your uh, editor's letter, if you don't mind, and then ask both you and, and Eliza to, uh, to chime in. I'll have a question at the end. You say, reading the getting to final drafts of articles and stories and poems in this issue, I was astounded to discover one more time how the sweetness of the table can ease our most bitter hour. There is joy in that. And joy for the table is where art and history enter our bodies and through our bodies, our lives, through food and conversation. I love that. <laughs> that's, that's just incredible. Um, you can talk about that. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know what the process was like. You talk about the submissions and, and the selection and, and how you had to go through that process. But that, that grabbed me when I read that editor's letter. Even now, it just, I feel emotional reading it because of the power of what sitting at a table, as you were just alluding to, means when you're sharing a meal, when you're sharing that experience with people and the power of the stories that get told and the history that gets remembered. So, I want to pause and just allow both of you to, to weigh in however you like about that. Eliza? Sure. Well, it is always such an interesting and fulfilling experience to put together the stories in any given issue. The process is different for all of them. And I think like all visionary editors, Alice came to this project with um, both an open mind for 
you know, wanting to share a prompt widely and accept ideas from anyone who wanted to send them. We reviewed many pitches from, um, from, from writers who sent them in response to our prompt. But then she also had a number of ideas for specific contributors that um, writers that she was a fan of, um, folks she knew who had stories that she hoped they would tell in this issue. So it's a it's a real combination of, I think, several of these writers, you know, Alice kind of paired an idea with a writer or encouraged them um, or folks just sending their passion project to us. I love rereading it this morning. It struck me that one of the themes that reckoning comes before reconciliation, that so many of the authors in differing ways were talking about that. And Brad, I think that you did that very ambitiously. I, we had never met except for in one of your restaurants. And I knew you as a person who had created extraordinary performance art in the form of restaurants. And I had no idea what you would write. And I love your piece. And particularly, I love the fact that you circle back to an early chef and ask them to say how they would respond to essentially an injustice that they had perpetuated on you or your restaurant on some level and an early reviewer. And there was reckoning and there was reconciliation in your piece. There was reckoning. It became, to me, that piece was a model of restorative justice, that other people should not just read this about a food piece, but as that if everyone stepped up to do what you did, to tell your story, invite the other people in and give them an opportunity to reckon with essentially an injustice that was done. You welcome them both back to the table in two different, very different ways. To me, that was an extraordinary example of reckoning coming before reconciliation. But there, I can point out that theme in almost every story. And it was wonderful, the ones that are completely surprising. The, the man who write about uh, apple picking and coming with a reckoning that the extraordinary experience that maybe that workers had had on his family farm wasn't universal. And it come from the fact that his, fa his uh, relative, having been in forced labor in a farm, that he had a very radical idea of what collaborating with workers should look like and that it wasn't universal, and that he had sentimentalized. That was a deep reckoning, mm -hmm. but there was so much reconciliation. And that's what I, I love it as being an example of what can be a better future than the past. And thank you. And I think the, the phrase that you're using of reckoning before reconciliation is just so, so on the money. And I felt personally like I was able to get something off of my chest. But at the same time, you know, it gave me an opportunity to re reach back to Ruth Reichel, the, the former food editor at the LA Times. We had made a connection actually before this article got written. And it, it just gave us both an opportunity to come back together in a different way. We've both grown. We've both evolved. She's phenomenal writer and a phenomenal lady. Um, so the, the, that, that really rings true to me. Um, there were several pieces, and I want to just touch on uh, a few of them briefly and then, again, have uh, both of you give me your thoughts. Um, some of the subjects were not so easy. Um, one of the articles, The Art of Being Eaten Alive, is uh, talk about a, a dance competition, and I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it, but the article by Channing Gerard Joseph is uh, definitely worth reading about the cakewalk. Uh, COVID Kitchen, I thought, was phenomenal, and the artwork, Peppermint and Pickles, was, was just incredible. And I'm going to just read a quick excerpt from that article. 
Um, it says, I fill in the planters and poke my baby plants into black dirt. In a few weeks, my patio is dotted with small pots filled with tomatoes and squash. My standing planter is thriving. I'm depending on some ancient DNA to kick in and make me remember how to do this. Placing my hands in the dirt makes me closer to the ancestors. I just think that that's incredibly beautiful, especially Alice, when I then read your daughter's poem and Caroline's poem um, is just incredible. It's called a sustainable call and response. And um, there's a there's a little excerpt before it that discusses how much farmland was actually confiscated from black landowners. And it's like 98 percent of the land that was owned by African-Americans to over 12 million acres in the past century. And Carolyn's poem, Sustainable Call and Response, she says, one line says, you say fresh produce, I say strange fruit. Wow. Talk to me a little bit about, and and, and Eliza, I'm curious, because again, some of these issues are like, you know, a little bit in your face and the idea of recognizing before reconciliation there, I'm sure there has to be a little bit, is this too radical for an Oxford American or are we comfortable with the, you know, with being the, the voice of, of these stories? So tell me a little about how that kind of evolved. for, for Yeah, well, I, I think our readers have an expectation for reckoning now. We do not shy away from hard conversations. And that is that is core to our identity as a magazine. Um, I'll also say that one of the beautiful things about working with Alice was her, you know, keeping us focused on reckoning, but also keeping us focused on joy. That was something that was so important to her to celebrate beauty, um, to celebrate deliciousness and things that are, are lovely um, and our experiences with food. So I, I think that readers are going to experience a very wide range of emotions as they experience this issue. There are moments of humor and there are just sweet and inspiring memories. I mean, I'm thinking of Michelle Lanier and Callie Grosner's conversation about their mom and their grandmother and their memories with these women in the kitchen and shared meals and the way that they were able to create these like just sweet moments for their kids and how that's so meaningful for them now. And I'm like wanting to circle things and, you know, remember these lines in my own experience as a parent. You know, one, one thing I have that has always been kind of a guiding principle for me as an editor is I want the, I want the magazine as a whole to feel like both a window and a, and a mirror for our readers. I want readers to see themselves reflected in pieces and their experience reflected, but I also want them to learn and see to to look through the window and experience different perspectives and learn new things and so you know and sometimes that happens that dynamic both of those dynamics happens within a single piece so mm. i hope that we have achieved that i think so allison any thoughts on what we're talking about here you know i think that the truth sets you free joy is radical is an important theme to me and food is at its best a five cents addressed to joy Mm-hmm. sight, the sound, the scent of joy. So it allows you to go deeper on the difficulties because it does give you the compensation. 
And so I think that um, I appreciate your quoting Caroline's poem, because I think it's one of the big divides that when people say farm to table, they don't understand that for the black experience. And that's one of the reasons I very much enjoyed collaborating with Eliza, that black people don't have just great experiences with growing strawberries. We know exploitive sharecropping strawberry growing. We don't have great experiences. My grandmother loved Tang because she thought astronauts had it as opposed to the black people she knew being exploited in the groves down in Florida. And so we don't often examine what does farm to table mean, although there are uh, black farms and black owned farms. But even then, that can be the loss, the elegiac of all the farmland loss, that these farms are not still in our possession and not always by our choice. So I think that one of the things that we've done most successfully with this is I had said I did not want any nostalgia. And I drew it because I said that we could look back but we're going to look back with wide and unblinking eyes. And we're going to find the absolute beauty and the absolute joy. Even the cakewalk, that complicated one that involves cannibalism, um, a person being flayed and having their body parts sold maybe to be eaten, the grease. That's a wild article, but it also has the cakewalk, which I know so much about at research. I did not know until I read that article that often the cakes were hoe cakes that are ash cakes, that are baked, and that they have become a symbol of rising from the ashes. Mm. We Shall Rise from the Ashes is actually the epigram for my novel, Black Bottom Saints. To me, that is one of the most important ideas in the America, that we need to continually be reborn, consumed in the fire to be born again better. But I learned about the hoe cake in that. And that the idea of that cake becomes the kernel of true optimism, because it's Black innovation, despite every that is discussed, people were creating and eating. And still, you know, um, just brilliant points, Alice. You know, Eliza, you touched on ice cream earlier and one of the pieces that just really had me, I'm an ice cream fiend. I love some ice cream. And I had never heard of the new Greek seeds. And in Peace About Ice Cream, it's just, she talks about... Um, the writer talks about this this new Greek seed, and it has when it's when it's um, roasted, it tastes like burnt sugar and maple syrup, and that it pairs well with chocolate. I mean, that I'm a chocolate ice cream. That's that's right up my alley. But it, it just sounds delicious, and it's that kind of balance that this issue has. It's it's some tough pieces, but then some things that just make you want to go and have whatever is being described. Well, that's one of the things I'm very proud of because um, Loki is a new writer. She's an extraordinary um, ice cream maker. And she and my daughter had met at a food conference in, in New York, actually. And I, she brought Loki to my attention. And she does a lot with CBD oil ice creams as well. She does all of these wonderful vegan ice creams. And people don't realize that the fastest growing group of vegans in America right now are African-Americans. That's right. I love Loki's wild ice creams, and she tends to create ice creams that are narrative. She cranks them in her own house, and it, and, and I, this idea of making an ice cream that is a monument to Kamala Harris, I just mm -hmm. love this. What is more all-American than ice cream, and that we could create this salute to Kamala Harris. If, I hope someone hears it here and we can get this ice cream to her some way. But what's also funny is I only know one chef in Nashville who read the issue 
and is taking that seed and putting it to other dishes at his restaurant saying he had forgotten about it till he read about it. So it is actually something that is known by some Southern chefs, but it's wonderful how the magazine is already influencing cooking in restaurants right now. And of course, that same person said they were fascinated by your article. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, you know, it's and, and she also mentioned, Lakani mentioned ice cream maker pioneer Sarah Estelle, who in the 1840s had an ice cream shop. And uh, so she she's dedicating this flavor to both Kamala Harris, our vice president, and to Sarah Estelle. So just a, a fantastic tribute. So I'll, I'll um and I, and I discovered this woman who was making ice cream in the 1840s by reading the magazine. And I'm going to use that as a segue to talk about Black Bottom Saints, because I discovered so much rich history and as I mentioned in the, the piece that I wrote, you know, I've been in the, I'm a second generation restaurateur. I've been in the restaurant business my entire life. I never heard of Thomas Bullock. And he wrote the first, he was the first African American to write a cocktail book. And you, you know, the, and your book throughout has all these fantastic drink recipes. But Alice, you know, that is part of the service of this wonderful book of yours. And so much of our, our history if the, if the stories don't get told and the individuals aren't illuminated, the further we get away from that history, the less accurate and less known those stories become. Was that part of your inspiration to capture this very magical period in Detroit? Absolutely. It has gotten forgotten. I love, I'm fascinated with telling the untold stories. Often we're so busy working that we don't document what we've done, which is why I have to say, Brad, I love after you, I read your piece, uh, Eliza and I both said he needs to write a book. <laughs> and that did because it's two, two generations of history. And I realized that the world, I would tell people about Ziggy Johnson and people kept on thinking, I must rem re be remembering his name wrong because they didn't think there was an important black uh, newspaper columnist called Ziggy Johnson. They would say, do you mean this person or that person? I said, no, I actually think I mean Ziggy Johnson. I started to wonder if I had gotten something wrong. I knew that it was Ziggy, but I was wondering, have I gotten something wrong about the columns? Did it only happen six times? No, when I was able to get the microfilm and research it, he had published columns for over 20 years in the Michigan Chronicle. But at that time, they were not digitized and they have been forgotten. Mm -hmm. And so our history or Thomas Bullock, who does publish in about 1917, a full cocktail book that one of the um, Bush family members, actually president's grandfather, had written an introduction to. But he gets forgotten. How do we forget that? Or Bricktop, was it just a singer? Bricktop owned a bar in Paris. She owned a bar in Rome. And she owned a bar in Mexico City. And that, how does that history get erased? So all of that I've been able to capture in Black Bottom Saints for the period 48 to 68 in Detroit and show that Detroit was a rival to Harlem and to Bronzeville and Chicago um, as an epicenter of Black culture. And what I love for you is to locate that part of when we are considering Black culture, we need to look at bar and restaurant culture. And Detroit had a huge percentage of Black-owned bars. When the factories were going 365, 365 days a year, the bars were too. They're legally and illegally, bars were open 24-7 in Detroit, Michigan, and large numbers of them. And so there was this vibrant bar culture. But when we get the 21st century craft cocktail movement, people aren't acknowledging the role the foundational role of Bricktop and Thomas Bullock, or at least they're not being widely acknowledged. And I do think that most black bartenders 
don't know their names. Well, no, most bartenders, period, don't know their names. How would they know their names? Eliza, I want to turn back to you because that, that to me is that, that illuminates the need for a, a prestigious publication like Oxford and someone like yourself who is mindful of these stories that need to be told. Just the, the wherewithal to reach out to Alice, to bring her into this issue, to illuminate these stories, these characters, um, these people that, that, you know, we know and, and the general public knows less well. But I want, as an editor, I, I wanted to ask you a question because there's an excerpt in, um, Black Bottom Saints, which is just a, a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, I couldn't, um, encourage people to read it enough, but she talks about, um, there's a gift that's been given to someone. And uh, it's it's about the um, the Drake book. And it says, I never told Gordy that I actually knew Bullock, meaning Thomas Bullock, the writer of this drink recipe book. I never told Gordy that I actually knew Bullock before she made the introduction or how well I knew him. It's important to accept gifts like Gordy did graciously. To me, this points to a degree of emotional intelligence and Eliza, I'm curious to, as an editor, reading as much as you do, how important is emotional intelligence to good writing? Hmm. That's a big question. I mean, there are, it, it is always felt impossible for me to pinpoint what makes a great story and what the ingredients, the, the ingredients are to a successful story. It's so, you know, talking about, um, dining being a multi-sensual experience i think reading often is too but i'll just point to your story brad and how why i think it's so terrific i mean your it's your voice and it is your ability to just you've got such a warm voice and you're like i just think about you're welcoming the reader to sit down and like listen to this great story about your family and your experiences and these sort of sometimes glamorous worlds. And we can hear it. We can see it. You're sensitive in, um, in how you are analyzing your experiences from years ago. I mean, that speaks to emotional intelligence, but I'm, I'm rambling on, but, um, the short answer is emotional intelligence is very important to craft. Many writers can write a very fine sentence, but if it if it doesn't have that heart and that emotional intelligence, it's probably not going to be elevated to the level of a of a great piece of writing. So I'll just yeah. leave it at that. But <laughs> I think your 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 story certainly has all the elements. Well, thank you. And thank you both for allowing me the opportunity to be part of this issue. I was telling someone the other day, I feel like I snuck under the velvet rope and, and eased past the doorman and somehow found myself in a club that uh, I didn't really feel like I belonged in, but I was very happy to, to be there. Um, Alice, you talk about um, the um, in your acknowledgments, Ziggy's column, the main character in uh, Black Bottom Saints, it was his column in the Michigan Chronicle that inspired you to want to be a writer. Um, it's kind of an unlikely place, but I, I totally make the connection and understand it once I've read the book. But talk about that a little bit. You know, when I was a little girl in Detroit, my father read to me from the Michigan Chronicle. He didn't read children's books to me. I was also raised going into bars with my family. <laughs> and so he was the writer I knew. 
Um, and, and I wanted to tell his story because I wanted to be a writer before I'd ever read about Zora Neale Hurston. But I have to say, I want to circle back and say something about this issue of craft and emotional intelligence, that question. And what I think is, um, actually Eliza's gift in a call I have to all people when she's leaving this magazine world. I always say to my students when I'm teaching craft, you can learn craft. The other, you know, voice craft have something significant to say. Emotional intelligence is that part of the intellectual part of having something significant to say. But which writers get, no writer alone can put in all the craft, particularly for magazine work. It's all about the editing, the layers. And who gets the attention, the editorial attention to get the pieces fully developed, fully born, depending on how the emotional intelligence of the editors. One of the things I was very excited about some pieces, we worked with some writers who had amazing emotional intelligence, amazing insight, but didn't yet have the craft necessarily to pull off the whole thing. Every writer is that person at some point. And some great writers, Thomas Wolfe, are that to the very end. And I mean, the old one. And they had great Maxwell Perkins. We don't know what Fitzgerald and Hemingway would have been without Maxwell Perkins because he had, they had Maxwell Perkins, editing them both very differently. But we didn't see their raw, rough drafts. We saw their edited work. And often the writer at home is comparing their raw work to someone else's edited work. And one of the hardest things as a black writer, a woman writer, but as particularly, and as a black woman writer, is to have access to editors who remotely get you. Mm -hmm. And who have a way and have, and get your language and get your concerns and know they're important. And so, and often when they do get you, they get you so much they don't want to correct anything. They could be that they see the emotional intelligence and so they don't want to shift. So I think one of the things that doesn't get talked about, particularly in food writing and in magazine writing, is the lack of access people with divergent voices have, no matter what those divergent voices are, to editors that can actually help them polish their work. Why I feel it's almost tragic Eliza is leaving this world is she had a gift for that. She had a heart for it, a mind for it, a gift for that. I'm a writer who doesn't really need a lot of editing. I came up knowing there was this dearth. And so I taught myself, I do my own multiple, multiple, multiple drafts, and I'm grateful for any editing they will add. But that's not how most writers come up, and that isn't. We need editors who can work with a wide variety of people and help more raw writing become refined. Does that make any sense to you? Uh, total sense. And, and uh, Eliza, I want to throw it back to you as we're, you know, we're, we're winding down here, but that, that is a pretty big compliment that uh, one of the most esteemed writers in the country uh, just threw your way. And um, I feel every word of that, knowing the important position that you're in at Oxford American, and that's not to diminish at all what you're getting ready to go and do. Um, but Give just as we're as we're starting to close out, how does it feel to know that that's the role that you played here with someone like an Alice Randall and and that, you know, you you were part of something that has been as special as the experience at Oxford American has been and then culminating in this beautiful issue? Oh, gosh. It, I mean, it means the world to me. It makes me emotional to hear Alice speak in that way. Um, someone I admire so much. Thank you. It's, yeah, it's hard for me to have the words for it. Um without more distance, but to have had these eight plus years as part of my life's work has just, 
it has been an incredible learning experience, um, having the chance to develop that intimacy and that close relationship that Alice is talking about. I, I don't know. I, maybe this is a women need to own their gifts more kind of thing. I don't really think of it in terms of this is my gift, but I do, I do feel that, you know, maybe just because I love to read and I love to read widely, I have a, I have a, a wide and deep appreciation for all different sorts of writing. And I just, I love great stories and I love the, I love feeling like I'm in the coach role of helping a writer realize their goals for a piece and make it the best version of what it can possibly be. And the longer you work on a piece, there in in my experience, I mean, when things are really like clicking along, um, there can sometimes almost be a mind meld thing that happens with the writer and the editor. And it's so satisfying and it's so fun and it feels awesome to publish a piece that then readers go on to connect with and writers are proud of. So yes, that is that has been incredibly satisfying. And I will miss working with writers. Just, I don't even know how much I'll miss it yet. I'll miss it like crazy. But I also feel like we are not meant to sit in these, sit in the editor's chair forever. You know, I, I think of the Oxford American as being something that is, it is bigger than me. It's, of course, it's bigger than any one editor. It's a living, evolving thing. And I think that um, writers are going to go on to have these beautiful relationships with editors when I'm, when I'm no longer in the editor's chair. And so that's what I'll say about that. <laughs> well, well, kudos to you, Eliza, and uh, certainly wish you well. And, and thank you again so much for allowing me to be part of, of this issue. Um, Alice, we're, we're, we're winding down here, but I, I just want to give the last word to you. You're such a brilliant mind and so many people look up to you and your accomplishments are just crazy and endless. And your daughter's phenomenal. We went through a tough year. Things are kind of crazy. They've not gotten back to normal. Just give us something to go out on from the Alice Randall playbook. I think this is a moment for old heads and new voices. We need both sides of it. We need old heads and new voices. We need to focus on joy is radical and justice is necessary and overdue. Those things, those reconciliation of opposites often happen best at the table. I think we need to grab a hold of our food culture, these food conversations, because it's something that we share and they are centered in life and love. And so they sustain us and make it us, give us a space we're more capable of dealing with nuance and trauma without having it re-traumatize us. So I think joy is radical. Food joy is real and food justice is necessary. And I think... We all have to play the role we feel in the moment. Some of us will always be the radical warriors going out. Some of us will be a warrior for eight years and come back in. One of the things that I love the cover of this magazine. I love the fact this man, he had not had a cover before. I saw that and I fought for that. And what, you know, some of us, one of my gifts is I am always willing to fight for others. And the thing that was exciting for me, I have loved being a novelist. I really hope to be able to do more of this because it reminds me of my favorite job, which is being a mother or being that I really loved fighting for my writers and my artists that I enjoyed. And that's the old head, new voices. I've had my say. There are five novels out there, a cookbook, a children's book. I love my books. I'm going to do a memoir. 
But I loved this opportunity to invite you into my life in a new way. I love inviting people in in a new way. I love inviting Eugenia Collier, who published her short story about sweet potato pie in the early 70s. It had become a classic, but it never really had been properly published. I love before she, she's now you know, an octogenarian, I love that we are giving her her due and her moment. So from the people whose careers we help launch to the people whose careers we help crown, I enjoyed fighting for those voices and making sure the one or two writers who felt like they couldn't do it, but we put them with a great editor. And I said, yes, you can. And you deserve to tell your truth. Keep on coming around. People don't just start off as perfect writers. And we got across those lines. That was wonderful for me. So I love that we I invite everyone to step into their new identities, that we're, we've been in a time of looking inward as we step out. Let's not try to do the thing that will never happen, which is step back into the world we lost. Let's start step into the new world we are making. Alice Randall, thank you so much for that. And I and I feel you there. There's a, the planet needs some mom energy. And you are both mothers. Eliza, you're a young mom with a two-year-old. And Alice, your daughter is already doing phenomenal things. So I just am fully supportive of the mom energy that the planet really desperately needs. And Alice, I look forward to seeing you soon and toasting uh, up with maybe a blue blazer. How about that? Oh, I, love, I, I want one of those old peach bellinis too. I, <laughs> we can do that too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Eliza, you're, you're in on that as well. But ladies, <laughs> it's just been an, an honor and a thrill and a pleasure to have you at the corner table with me. And uh, just thank you. Thank you both so much for your time. Living restaurant history. I feel like I was in your daddy's place at the corner table for a moment. <laughs> thank, thank you. you so folks, turning to uh, the segment that I love, how we move with Ambassador Shabazz. Ambassador, yes, what's going on? How you doing? I'm fine. I understand it's much warmer where you are, but it's getting warm where I are <laughs> and where I am, to be more specific. I really, really loved listening to your your podcast, Alice Randall and Eliza Borne, in reference to their work with the uh, Oxford American. Brilliant. 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 I mean, I don't even know how to edit in short. Having it in my hands, I couldn't sit still enough to read it all. So they're dog-eared because I wanted to really dive in and live. You got your this. issue. I have my issue. All right. And um, they are. They're, they're dog-eared because I want to dive in. I didn't want to do a quick read. When I started reading paragraphically, I realized, oh, no, this takes time. I want a journey with each of these voices. And, of course, you having a submission as well just really moved me because it really speaks to the narrative, the voice that you do bring forth when you're telling a story about your experiences. And they're just like when people um, walk into your restaurants, when they do sit at a corner table, when you recapture them and give people slices of what they may have missed in person, but they get an opportunity to experience through your narratives and through this podcast. It's really just exciting. So listening to the two brilliant, amazing commentarians, contributors, it's just an invitation for me to make the time this week and dive in. It is a collector's item kind of mm. magazine. It's mm -hmm. not one you just throw away. It's one you go back to. And there must have been about 
eight stories that immediately captured me. One of the lighter ones was from who you mentioned was Lokelani Alabanza. Now, not only do I I'm come from a family, <laughs> <laughs> well, I come from a family where names are like very hieroglyphic. Yeah, so you would so be I able to myself. pronounce that. <laughs> and being able to get those vowels and, and uh -huh. things out. But I want to know more about her. As a result of reading the article, I started to look her up online and so I could hear her voice and her journey. And her journey is like anybody else's in wonderment. It's not abracadabra. It, it, it's not all of a sudden. I mean, she did travel through Europe in a Ural Pass, going from place to place and touching down in kitchens and moved in one area, but was guided by what has now become the, the saturated uh, ice cream store or the, her being a creamery and really fantastic. In the article, it starts out by talking, it's, it's titled A Monumental Flavor. And so, of course, you have to pull back the layers to understand where that's going in context to ice cream. But I got it because it's like it's like the statement, you know, it's the sentiment. It evokes the story. And I started thinking about for me, because ice cream, as you stated in the interview, is really one of my big weaknesses. And I realized, is it really the ice cream alone or is it the story in which ice cream entered my life? And ice cream was my dad and my like midnight conversation. Right. So not not all the way midnight, but it felt like that. So it was kind of like 10 o'clock. The house was uh -huh. quiet at nine and I'd see under my door, I could see the kitchen light come on and I'd wait a while. And it was my dad <laughs> sitting at the kitchen table with that bowl of ice cream. And then what when was I was his flavor, well, we would always start with a base of vanilla. Vanilla mm -hmm. was the ice cream, but then we would make things. So one of our mixtures was like ginger ginger cinnamon and maybe even a little sesame right now you you, you still throw a little cinnamon in your ice cream every yeah, I time that, I've been so that, okay right. now I know the origin all right see right. so I always order the the vanilla and then they give me a side of cinnamon right uh -huh. so it was that but part of it was not just the ice cream alone it was the time spent right mm -hmm. it's when when Alice Randall talked about breaking bread with with folks was like really discerning discerning who your kin were who your kin was and we would have our chats. So it wasn't quite midnight. It wasn't like, uh, you know, after hours, but it was for the house. And it was where we would really talk about things, even in my young life, right? It was our thing. And it was really emotional when I started to read that and realized that in itself has its own, is its own monument, you know, its own testament, right? It's its reflection for me. And as a result, when, when you know, I think everybody, when you hear the ice cream man on the block, it's not even what you're going to get. It's just knowing that it's ice cream. <laughs> you know, it's the signature of, you know, trying to find that quarter. Now it's probably a $5 bill. But then when the ice cream man came, it was the amour. It was the collection, you know, of his arrival that, that, that song that would play, we all knew it. And it shifted ache to joy. You know, it, it shifted, you know, distraction to focus in a way and in a way that was really quite celebrative. Well, you know, that's that's really what I enjoyed about this magazine. Aside from just every article is, is really, really wonderfully written. Um, but the, the the joy that that you imagine when people are consuming an ice cream cone. You know, it's hard to be unhappy 
Right. Yeah. And so you yeah. think of, you know, a nice summer day and, and just a warm breeze and your favorite flavor. You got to choose it. And yeah. you're just sitting there and you, you're enjoying it. You're in the moment and life is good. Life is good for, for that half hour and the way you hum or swirl or break something off or, you know, clean that cone. However, it is, it is, it is something that for me, even as I speak now, I have a, an emotional reflection to watching my father's absolute indulgence and joy and then him sharing that with me, you know, getting getting up and getting my bowl too, you know, and then we would have items on the table that we would sprinkle <laughs> in and swap, you know, um, bless see, him. Now, see, now you never, all the time having dessert around you and I would see the cinnamon go on the vanilla, you never credited its proper source. So it, <laughs> at least now, now I know. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but thank you for that. And, and maybe coming up, we can talk about some cool ice cream places around the country that, that absolutely and there are. are involved with and doing. I know Colin Kaepernick's got a new ice cream flavor out. Right? Amazing. And it's coming mm -hmm. out in July. It's it, I already had a sample in December and it is so good that I am restlessly awaiting the next few months for it being uh, available in the United States. It's already out in Europe and all of his proceeds, as I had mentioned in another podcast um, with you, they all go 100 percent of the proceeds go to his Know Your Rights camp. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, we look forward to finding some more great ice cream stops yeah. to make along That's the way. That's exactly Ambassador. right. That's a journey. Yeah. How about that? And I'm going with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you, you. Ambassador. It's always lovely to, to talk to you, hear your voice. It's just reaffirming uh, just to know you're there. So thank you for joining. Glad to be at the Corner Table. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Coordinating producer, Lauren Turner. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production.